As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Well, we are in the um, final week of our Advent series, and uh, we've covered some traditional themes or topics throughout this Advent series. We began by looking at the hope of Jesus, and we moved on to looking at the peace of Jesus, and we saw the joy of Jesus, and as I've prayed already this morning, we are going to be looking finally at the love of Jesus. And really, this um, pulls all of this Advent series together, and in many ways, it pulls together all of Christmas. At the very heart of the Christmas season is the love of God that is manifested to us in the love of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Now, last week, we saw kind of a peek behind the curtain when it comes to the Christmas story. Revelation chapter 12 gives us the spiritual backdrop to all of the physical events that are taking place during the Christmas story, the Christmas narrative that we're familiar with. And we saw last week that there is kind of against the the Christmas story, against the Christmas story, this backdrop of a spiritual war that's taking place, a cosmic battle that is unfolding in real time and in history. It's a spiritual battle between two kings and two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And it all comes to this climax and crescendo at the Christmas story. Revelation 12 says that Satan, he is a serpent, depicted as a serpent in Revelation chapter 12. He, he waits there as this woman is depicted in the pains of labor, about to give birth to a child, and we know this child to be Jesus. And here this serpent waits, and he, he's there, and he is crouched, and he's ready to devour the child. It reminds us that Satan was intent on destroying Jesus as quickly as possible. He did not want the plan of God to continue to unfold. And in his foolishness, he thought somehow that he could actually prevent the unfolding plan of redemption, the great story of God's love, from even happening. Somebody sent me a quote this week in light of last week's sermon that I found really, really moving, and it relates deeply to our passage this morning. Here's what the quote said. It said, at Christmas, we celebrate our belief that the king of the universe has come into the world to wage peace and justice, to bring love and kindness to all. But we forget that the birth of Christ also released a malignant force, the unbridled power of empire, the jealous strength of a threatened monarch meted out upon the most vulnerable of all people. Yes. That is what we see in our passage this morning. We see this in Herod as he responds to this newborn king. We see his physical attack against children trying to wipe out this newborn king, an attack that was driven by a spiritual enemy of God's people, Satan himself. Why? Again, again, see this. It's because Satan knows that God's plan to save the world, is unfolding. He's watching it happen, and he is not pleased by it. In fact, Revelation 12 gives this sense that Satan is filled with rage and hatred, and he opposes the God who is filled with love and mercy. 
And in our passage this morning, we see really a depiction of Satan, not just towards Jesus, but towards the church of Jesus Christ. Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, but we also see, listen, a beautiful picture of God in contrast to Satan. We see here in such a vivid and powerful way that while Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, God sent his only son, his only begotten son into the world. Why? Because of his great love. The story of the Bible and the story of Christmas is really the story of God's love. It is a love that overcomes the hatred of Satan and a love that overcomes the power of sin. And this love calls for a response from us, from all people. And it's fitting for us to consider how we respond to God's love during this Christmas season. I want to read to you. Um, the first portion of our text. We're going to look at it uh, a chunk at a time this morning, and then I want to walk us through our response as we move through the text. In verse 13, if I can just kind of build the context for you, remember that the wise men had come to see Jesus. They bow down before Him, and they worship Him, and they bring Him gifts fit for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And in verse 12, it says that they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. And here is the response of Herod. Um, now, when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And notice what Matthew says here. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. As we consider God's love in the Christmas season and through this passage, in contrast to the hatred of Satan, and we consider that this love is calling for a response from us. I want you to see this first response. We need to run to the love that protects. God here in this situation supernaturally protects Jesus. He protects Jesus from the devastation that Herod was intent on causing. And he does so in a supernatural way. He warns these wise men in a dream not to return in the same way, not to give Herod the information that he was seeking, and he warns Joseph in a dream, the father of Jesus, instructing him to run, get out of here. Things are about to turn violent for you. Herod is on the prowl. He's not pleased. He wants to seek. He wants to kill. He wants to destroy. He calls Joseph to flee and he calls him to flee to Egypt. And what we see here is this is actually in fulfillment of this prophecy, out of Egypt I called my son. Again, remember that Matthew is reminding us that everything that's happening in the Christmas season, everything related to Jesus, is ultimately a fulfillment of prophecy, a reminder that God has orchestrated this plan from eternity past, that God has been clear that he loves the world so much he will come into this world to save sinners. But what is Matthew doing here with this scripture? 
In fact, in the rest of chapter 2, we see him doing something similar. We see really three fulfillments of prophecies. That's what he's going to allude to in each of the three sections we're going to look at. But, but it's really strange in one sense the way he is looking at the fulfillment of these prophecies. In fact, at first glance, many people have looked at these fulfillments of prophecies and thought that maybe um, Matthew was randomly taking Old Testament verses and trying to squeeze them into the life of Jesus. He was taking verses that didn't really fit because he really wanted to make it fit. You know, it's kind of like trying to, to squeeze into that new pair of pants you got from, for Christmas after the Christmas holidays. It just doesn't work. But that's not exactly what's happening here. What's taking place here is a unique form of fulfillment of prophecy. And, and really, Matthew has demonstrated two kinds of fulfillment of prophecy. The first kind of fulfillment is kind of like a precise fulfillment. So earlier on in Matthew chapter 2, we saw these kind of precise fulfillments where the Old Testament speaks explicitly about what this Messiah would be, about what he would do, and what Matthew is doing is saying, this is clearly that. Here is the fulfillment of all that was said in such vivid terms. But here what we see him doing in the second half of Matthew chapter 2 is more of a pattern fulfillment. They're not precise in the same way, or they're not explicit in the same way. Matthew is identifying some unique patterns or stories in the Old Testament, and he's wanting us to see how this story taking place in real time is like this story that was taking place in the Old Testament. It's a reoccurring story, a reoccurring pattern that is reaching its culmination and final fulfillment right here in the story of Jesus Christ. These kind of pattern fulfillments are seen in lots of places in the scriptures. Let me give you a couple simple examples of this. One would be the temple. The temple is described throughout the scriptures in a progressive kind of fashion, in a way that describes um, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, we've looked at this before, moving into the tabernacle, God's presence dwelling amongst his people, into a concrete temple, so to speak, in the land. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and says, I will destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. John says that Jesus tabernacled among us, the presence of God with us. The church becomes the temple of the living God. You see, there's a pattern that is emerging in the scriptures that reaches a final culmination. It's the same thing with the sacrificial system. The system, the physical elements, the physical practices, they pointed, they were a shadow pointing towards a greater fulfillment that is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. And here, Matthew isn't simply thumbing through his Bible looking for random proof texts that somehow might fit into this situation. Instead, he's reading through the whole story of Israel, and he's noticing under the inspiration, inspiration of the Holy Spirit how this story in the, the present moment is like this story in the past. And this is part of God's design to encourage the hearts of his people. He's showing his people that he's always cared for them, he's always protected them, and he's always had a plan to do so in the greatest possible way. The prophet here being referred to is the prophet Hosea. That's uh, from verse 15 there. Um, this is what Hosea prophesied, out of Egypt I called my son. 
And in the context of Hosea, this is Hosea 11 verse 1, it is referring explicitly to Israel. In other words, Israel in that context is the Son of God. Um, The Son of God language is applied to Israel all throughout the Old Testament. And in that original context, Hosea is recalling how God, through Moses, called Israel out of Egypt. And here's what Matthew wants you and I to see in this passage this morning, that there is a pattern that is telling the grand story of the Bible. God's people were at one time in bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh, a usurper, satanic kind of king. An evil man who oppressed the people of God, who did not want God's people to worship the true and living God and did everything in his power to prevent it. And yet, in that instance, that story that we're familiar with, God provides a way of escape for his people. He calls his son Israel out of Egypt. He raises up a leader on behalf of the people of God, a representative in the person of Moses who confronts Pharaoh, who displays the power of the true and living God in front of Pharaoh and in front of God's people. And God uses this man, Moses, to lead his son, his people, out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt into freedom, freedom to worship him as the true and living God. What's interesting is that Hosea appeals to this pattern while living in exile in Assyria. So he's speaking to a people who are once again in bondage, once again under an evil, wicked, ungodly ruler. And he says to the people there in that time, in that moment, hey, remember, remember God liberated us before. Remember God promised we would be delivered from Exodus. Listen, God is faithful. He will do what he always promised to do. This exile is not the end of us. God is going to come through. God will provide a way of escape. And God is going to provide an escape for His Son just like He did before. And now what Matthew does is so fascinating. He pulls this truth forward right here into the present situation in the life of Jesus. And he says, all of these stories point fully and finally to this one right here. Jesus, in other words, is the one in whom all of these stories find their climax. This pattern finds its end and fulfillment right here. Jesus, essentially, Matthew says, is the embodiment of Israel itself. He is a new and better son. And so here we have this picture of Mary and Joseph fleeing into Egypt and God bringing his son back out of Egypt. And it's, it's depicting for us how God is faithful to rescue his people, to protect his people in the midst of oppression and tyranny and wickedness and evil. Jesus would be depicted um, as this son of God in some powerful ways as Matthew unfolds the rest of his gospel. This isn't just a one-time kind of display of this truth. In fact, what we see unfolding in the gospel of Matthew is something so fascinating. From here, I want you to think about this. Jesus is taken in chapter 3 to John the Baptist. He sees John the Baptist, and there Jesus is baptized. And here we hear the voice of God from heaven saying, this is my beloved, what? Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
language, again, that is alluding back to the people of God in Israel that had to pass through the waters coming out of their exodus event in Egypt. And then Jesus goes out in chapter 4 into the wilderness, just like who? Israel. Where he is tempted by Satan to reject God himself, to bow the knee to Satan. And there Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy three times showing victory over Satan in the wilderness where the people of God, listen, failed. Not only that, coming out of the wilderness event, we go into Matthew chapter 5, and what we have is Jesus ascending to the top of a mountain where he stands up and he begins to teach the people the law of God. I need you to see the parallels here with Moses who went up to Mount Sinai and came back down with the law of God for the people of God. He's trying to paint for us a picture that sums up this whole history and the whole hope of God's people, not in Moses, not in the faithfulness of Israel, but in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, in this moment, becomes the representative for the people of God. And God is going to protect his son in this moment from his enemy. Why? Why is this so important? Yes, so that Jesus can accomplish the plan of God, right? This is not Jesus' time to die. There is an appointed time for Jesus to die. It's not here. It's not now. But why is this so important for me and you? Because in protecting his son, Jesus Christ, God is protecting you and me as well. By being an escape Here, for Jesus Christ, Jesus becomes the escape for us. Jesus, in this moment, inaugurates a new exodus for the people of God. Not a physical exodus out of Egypt, but a spiritual exodus out of sin. God has provided, in this moment, remember, a way out of sin, a way out from the bondage and slavery of sin, a way out from the power of Satan. We see here the power of God's love that protects from the greatest of enemies. When you consider Jesus in a manger this Christmas, remember that God protected this child from the wrath of Satan so that you and I might also be protected from the wrath of Satan, but more importantly, that we might be protected from the wrath of God. God protects Jesus so that Jesus can protect us. And I want to draw upon the the sense of urgency that is embedded in this text. There there is urgency for Joseph and Mary to flee with Jesus into Egypt. And I would just kind of draw upon that to say there is an urgency for you and I to flee into the arms of Jesus. To run to God for protection. And some of you in here today, maybe you're visiting with us or you're checking out Christianity and it's, you know, tis the season to frequent a church building. Hey, we're so thankful you're here. And we're so glad that that you come on this day because there is a sense of urgency that you need to know about. There is an urgent need for you to run to the love of God that protects you, listen, from the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And here we're reminded that we can do that, that God has his arms flung open wide to us. We no longer have to live under the power of sin and slavery to it. We can find salvation and hope in running to the love of Jesus. 
I love what Proverbs 18.10 says, a familiar proverb. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. All those who run to the Son of God are set free. And this slavery language John picks up on in the Gospel of John, he says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You see, this is the greater Exodus story being told right here in the birth of Jesus and in the protection of Jesus. Some of you are saved and you've run to the love of Jesus for protection and you've fled there and found hope in your time of need. And I just want to remind you that there is a constant need for us to keep running there, to always run there back time and time again. We need to run there in the moments of temptation, not just in the moment of salvation. We're called to pray as Jesus instructed his disciples, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this, No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have an enemy who is still attacking. We still fight the battle with our sin, and so we constantly run back to the source of our salvation and the protection in the midst of temptation. Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. May we be a people, especially during this Christmas season, who are reminded that we can run to the love that protects us in each and every situation. Secondly, notice this, that we need to rest in the love that provides. There's an urgent need to flee, and there is a desperate need to rest. And here we see not only that God protects His his people, he protects his son and thereby protects all those who by faith are in Christ Jesus, but that he provides as well in powerful ways. He alluded specifically to the Exodus in the first prophecy fulfillment, and here he alludes to the exile event in a very specific way. Notice verse 16. It says this, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region where, there were two, where they were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Satan's schemes are devious. He is so bent on the destruction of the Son of God, and we see that here, this, this horrific scene that displays the wickedness of Satan. Herod has been plotting and planning to destroy this child. He's determined how old this child must be. He has determined that Jesus would be somewhere under the age of two, likely between the age of one and two years old. He's used the, the wise men as a tool to try to determine this, figuring out when they first saw the star, how long they had been on their journey
we don't only see, however, the wickedness of Satan here, we see the foolishness of Satan. I want you to consider the foolishness and the arrogance, not only of this man Herod, but of Satan himself in this moment, who is behind Herod and his actions. I mean, both Herod and, and Satan, by the way, are observant enough to recognize the truth of the Old Testament prophecies about God's plan, but they're arrogant enough to think that they could somehow thwart this plan of God. This is a powerful reminder that no created being, not even Satan himself, can thwart the plan of God. And in this situation, God the Father intervenes to protect his son and to provide for his salvation in this moment and also for ours. And we see him providing a great hope and comfort for all people in this moment in a really sweet way as he alludes to a prophecy where he quotes directly from Jeremiah 31 verse 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here in Jeremiah 31, 15, Jeremiah is talking about the time when God's people were taken into exile. Again, God's people were unfaithful to the covenant with their God. They, they sinned grievously against God time and time again. And though God is a God of great patience and mercy and compassion, his patience ran out with his people, and he did what he promised he would do. He had them dragged off into exile under the, the vicious rule and reign of the Babylonians. Under the vicious and rule and reign of the Assyrians. The Babylonians came and attacked Jerusalem. They leveled people's homes, destroyed the entire city, and then they took all the people to Ramah, a place just north of Jerusalem. At Ramah, the people were put into caravans, and they were scattered apart from one another. The scene here is a scene of unimaginable anguish. Jeremiah's specific prophecy relates to this captivity in Babylon, and it relates not only to the scattering of, of the children of God's people, but also to the killing of children during the Babylon, Babylonian conquest of Judea. It was traditionally believed that Rachel was buried here in Ramah. It's not definitive, but it was traditionally believed that this was the place of her burial. Rachel was the mother of Benjamin and Joseph. She was viewed as the matriarch to the, the, the people of God, the nation of Israel. And so here what we see is, is this vivid image of, of Rachel, the mother of, of God's children in a sense, in a metaphorical sense, watching as God's people are being paraded off into exile, watching as the sons are separated from their mothers, watching as sons are literally being murdered and massacred in this raid and the pillaging of this city. And it's as if she has come to life in her grave and she was weeping over God's people who were not faithful, who couldn't be faithful, and who now were suffering the consequences of their sin and were going to be placed in exile, in bondage again. Matthew in his genealogy has related to the exile as a pivotal point in Israel's history, a point of deep despair. There they are again, trapped 
But in the midst of, of this despair and discouragement, here what we see is that there is a note of hope. In the midst of the sorrow and weeping, there is supposed to be the sense of great joy that awaits God's people. The verse Matthew quoted regarding the, the children slaughtered by Herod is one of these sorrowful notes that's common in Jeremiah's ministry. He's known as the weeping prophet. He, he weeps repeatedly. He gives a message in uh, many ways of horror and despair. But in its original context, it's important to understand what immediately follows this depiction of sorrow. In fact, I'll put it on the screen so you can see. And remember, the, the, the Israelites who would have read this would have been familiar with this chapter. It's such a pivotal chapter for God's people. Here's what it says immediately after. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. This is a powerful and striking parallel that Matthew is drawing upon. Jeremiah goes on in, in chapter 31 to describe the hope of a new covenant. That God's people who are rebellious will have their heart of stone removed and replaced with a heart of flesh that God will establish a new covenant that will unite his children under his name for his glory. It's as if he's telling them amidst the horror of this evil event, in the midst of the pain and in the midst of the weeping, it's as if, it's as if Matthew is using the scriptures to remind them of the voice of God that is saying to them, yes, the pain is real in this moment, but even now I am at work. There is hope for your future and there is hope right here. Jesus has come. The tears will end because God's people will be finally delivered from their exile. They will finally and fully be delivered from the rule of the enemy. The enemy will not have the last word. He will not get the last say. The reign of a new king under a new covenant is at hand. And so while these mothers mourn, rightly so, over their murdered sons, we need to be reminded, listen, that Mary would soon mourn over the murder of her son. But her mourning would turn to joy her mourning would turn to dancing as her son, the son of God, would rise from the dead and guarantee our resurrection from the dead. Her son would be put to death, but he would not stay in the grave. His resurrection would be the death knell to Satan himself. His death and resurrection provide eternal rest for our souls. Jesus Christ is being depicted here as the one to put an end to our mournful exile. That's what Matthew's saying. He is coming again to right all wrongs and to make all things new. And our exile into sin and slavery to it is coming to an end once and for all. It comes to an end in part. It is inaugurated, this exile, in the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves liberated by the power of the Spirit of God as we come to Jesus Christ in faith. 
But there is a day coming where this inaugurated exile will be consummated. And remember, Advent, it reminds us not simply of the first coming of Jesus, it points us toward the second coming of Jesus. And part of the hope that we have as we think about the second coming of Jesus, it's not just that we have been liberated from sin here and now, we understand that between the two comings of Christ, we still see the effects of sin all around us. We still see the effects of sin within us. For many during the Christmas season, listen, Christmas is not a sweet time of good memories, it is a painful time filled with tragic memories. But we are reminded, listen, that just as Jesus came to be the one who puts an end to our exile, he is coming again in full to finally deal with sin and Satan. No more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. He will usher us home to the land we have been designed to live in in the midst of his presence. Our hope and rest are found in the love of Jesus that provides an end to our exile. And lastly, this causes us to rejoice in the love that prevails. Here we see a final prophetic fulfillment. And this one is actually the most puzzling of all. Here's what it says. In verse 19, it says, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Here again, supernaturally, God protects and preserves and provides for Jesus. And what we see happening here is that though Herod is dead, his son who assumes the throne is just as wicked and just as evil, and Joseph, still fearful, receives another message from God and essentially says, go back to your hometown. Go back to the place of your upbringing. And there we see Mary and Joseph settling into this place called Nazareth. And what Matthew says is that this all happened so that what was spoken by the prophets might actually be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you're a student of the Bible and you've looked at this before, you're going to be aware of something right out the gates. The Bible nowhere in the Old Testament says that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. In fact, Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament scriptures, not once. You say, well, what's happening here? Is, Is Matthew getting this wrong? Did he misread the scriptures? Is he misapplying something here? No, not at all. Not at all. You see, the key to understanding um, what Matthew says here is to see how Matthew uses the word prophets. Here, he uses it in the plural sense. He hasn't done that up to this point. He speaks of the prophets, plural, to tell us that what he's doing is he's pulling together some common themes that were given by the prophets in the Old Testament, and he's pulling them into this one thought that can be summed up in this idea that he would be called a Nazarene. 
So in other words, this is not an indirect quotation. This is Matthew's attempt to summarize uh, the tone or tenor of more than one of the prophets. He's not intending to communicate a word-for-word quote that's found in a specific location, but instead a theme that is supported in multiple locations throughout the Old Testament scriptures. So here's the question we need to ask. What's the deal with Nazareth? What's so important about being called a Nazarene? Why is that such a massive fulfillment of all of these prophets' prophecies? Well, we learn this through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew and other Gospels, that Nazareth was actually not a very well-respected place. It was actually at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, to say the least. It was a city that was mixed with both both Jews and Gentiles, so it was already looked down upon. It was filled with the, the the, the lowest of the low kind of people. Do you remember when, uh, in John's gospel, Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth? Do you remember his response? He says, can anything good come from Nazareth? By the time Matthew wrote his account, the word Nazarene had actually become a household adjective describing anything despised and scorned. In fact, in Acts 24, verse 5, when Christ followers, Christians, uh, are called members of the Nazarene sect by their enemies, the term was intended to be an insult. You see, Nazarenes were scorned. They were derided, and generally they were despised in the world's eyes. See, so why did Matthew highlight this negative anticipation of the Messiah's ministry? Why is he drawing attention to this? It's because of this. It's this idea of scorn that is all over the prophets. This idea of of derision, of being mocked, of being hated. We see this all throughout the prophecies of old. Maybe most famously in places like Isaiah chapter 53. Let me just, let me just read this to you. Be reminded of this as we, we consider the fact that we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning and we're celebrating the reality of Christmas. Consider this for a moment. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Consider Psalm 22, verse 6, a messianic psalm. Speaking of the Messiah, listen to this. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Psalm 69, 19, again, another messianic prophecy. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. So you see, this seems to be what Matthew is getting at here. The king who who has come 
To be savior of the world is a king who will first be rejected and despised by the world. He will be a a Nazarene, scorned, despised, lowly. And you see, his hometown becomes a prophetic metaphor for how he will be viewed not only in his life but in his death. And this final quotation in verse 23 of chapter 2, it brings this entire chapter to a fitting conclusion. You see, the king of the universe has come to save sinners. And from the start, he is despised and derided by the very sinners he came to save. I mean, this is both the irony and the beauty of the gospel. He is born into a manger because there's no room for him at the inn. He's not born in a palace He comes in a way that is antithetical to the ways of the world. The world loves strength and power. Jesus comes in weakness and humility. The world praises privilege and position. Jesus comes in poverty and obscurity. The world wants someone to conquer by force. Jesus has come to prevail in meekness. And you see, God's love is often overlooked because... It is viewed as something of shame. It is despised and mocked. It's a love that seems obscure. It appears to lack power, and it seems only to display weakness and defeat. But the city of Jesus' birth, Nazareth, the place of his upbringing, it parallels the means of his victory. The cradle and the cross both remind us not of the foolishness of God, but of the wisdom of God. It reminds us that God's ways are not like our ways. We're not smart enough or capable enough to get ourselves to God, and so God comes in this seemingly paradoxical way to rescue us from our sin, to prove once again that He is the one who must do it. No one else can. I love what Paul says. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, the foolishness of the cross displays the wisdom and the power of God. It displays the love of God in profound ways. And this is the love that prevails over Satan, over sin, over death. This is the kind of love that prevails, listen, over our strongest rebellion and resistance. 
God comes in a despised way, and he comes for those who in the world's eyes are so often despised. He doesn't come for us because we are worthy, because we are good enough, because we come from the right pedigree. He comes for us because, listen, he comes for those who, like himself, are lowly and bowed down, those who recognize they are nothing on their own. And this is the heart of Christmas. We see the love of God on display to prevail against our rebellion over Satan himself, over the power of sin and death. He takes those of us who are enemies and he makes us his friends. You say, why does he do this? Why? So that we might boast and rejoice in him alone. That's it. So at the end of the day, when we stand before our king, when we bow down low before him, we say, God, this is all about you. It's all about your glory. I'm here only because you came and sought me. You came and found me. And you did so in the most ironic and marvelous way possible. You came lowly and meek and out of love. You came and you rescued me. You see, Christmas is the love of Jesus. That's what Christmas is. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Not simply a baby in a manger, but a God on a cross who hung there for our sins and rose victorious from the grave because we see in Christmas how the love of God prevails over our greatest enemy, amen? We have a new exodus We have in Jesus an end to our exile. And in the love of Jesus, we are no longer enemies but friends. So this Christmas, let's run to the love that protects. Let's rest in the love that provides. And let us for sure rejoice in the love that prevails.